dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Tell the bellboy come and get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here tonight All right, Welcome back to a new episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. How are you today, Meryl McNally? I'm good. How are you, Zach? I'm good. I think this is the first episode, besides the recent interview with Fred, where we've actually been able to see each other. I've always been able to see you, but now you can see me too. It's really nice. (laughs) I think that's right, you know? Yeah, totally. So as folks who are regular listeners know we're in the middle of a COVID challenge where we're doing six movies from the eighties. And after we do that, sorry, you can hear my dog drinking. <laughs> um, <laughs> we do that. We will have covered all of Merrill's films from the 1980s, but I want to point out something, which is that we've actually been going a little bit out of order and that the most recent uh, thing that Meryl and I here have done was interview Fred Skepsy, and we put that up before the COVID challenge. Uh, so this is the first one of the episodes since then. Boy, I'm not being articulate about this, but this is the first episode <laughs> since then. You are. I followed. I followed. <laughs> so I want to, to start off the show by saying that we heard from a few folks that the the quality of that episode wasn't quite up to snuff compared to our previous episodes. We know and we apologize. Fred is in Melbourne, Australia. Meryl is in New Mexico. I am in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's kind of amazing that we were able to speak at all. Um, that's kind of the best we were able to get. And uh, I, I should have put a disclaimer before the episode. And I, it was kind of too late in the process of, before I realized that. But uh, we figured you'd want to hear it in some format. So hopefully you got some enjoyment out of it. We know it wasn't our best work, but anyway, just kind of wanted to acknowledge that right at the top, but how are you doing today? I'm good. I have the day off, which is nice. That is nice. I know. I love a three day weekend. Yeah. Rare day off these days. Yeah. So, yeah. So doing homework, talking to you, watching some Meryl Streep. Enjoying life, living my best life living the best as possible life. in COVID. It's a little yeah. asterisk. <laughs> so let's see. Have you been now? The other thing I want to acknowledge is that it's actually been a couple of weeks since we've done an episode where we've talked about one of the movies. So yeah. I have like three or four things to talk about in the what else have you been watching? And I don't want people to think that I binged all four of these things in the one day since we spoke. It's been a while. <laughs> but what have you been watching um you know what I don't I don't think I could even remember I will I we talked a little bit about this before we hit record but I did watch Enola Holmes Mm -hmm. this weekend the new movie on Netflix about sort of reimagining of the Sherlock Holmes story with with a younger sister Millie Bobby Brown Henry Cavill Sam Claflin Burn Gorman, some really great sort of fantastic British actors um, mm-hmm. in the mix, too. Uh, it was so charming. Nice. I highly recommend it. Very funny, very cute, great, just great for young girls. That's good. 
I've, as I mentioned to you, I, it seems like everybody I know has been watching that. I, I talked to my mom yesterday and kind of out of nowhere, she said, you know, I watched the first movie I've watched in the longest time. And that was the one that, that she watched. So did she like it? She did. Yeah. She thought it was good. I think, um, I think I, I, I've talked to a few other people who've been talking about that movie too. It just seems like everybody's watching that. It must be a big hit for Netflix, I think. Yeah, I think so. It's in their top 10. Yeah. Um, I did see that Ratchet is at number one on Netflix and has been for a while. Um, I want to dig into that. I haven't yet. It's Ryan Murphy's. Yeah. For, for those of you who don't know, it's Ryan Murphy's new show. So the best sort of the, the origin story of Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So it looks it looks interesting and very Ryan Murphy. Yeah. And it um, uh, what I didn't realize, I thought it was going to be uh, just, you know, this thing. But I guess it's intended as a series. I guess it was intended as a four season series. Oh, good to know. I did not know. So, yeah, there may be more of it coming down the line. Yeah, especially since it has been received pretty well. Uh, yeah. It's very popular. They're, they're really promoing the shit out of it. And um, it looks great. I mean, the promo makes it look fantastic. So Yeah. What have you been watching? I, like I said, I've watched a whole bunch of things. I watched, actually, we'll go with the Sarah Paulson uh, read. I watched that Coastal Elites that was on HBO that was the filmed from different people's houses so sarah paulson's in it caitlin deaver bet midler uh dan levy and Issa ray oh nice it's just those five and they basically have monologues the five of them um it starts with with bet midler's who has the first monologue and hers is definitely the longest hers is like 25 30 minutes um it's it's just basically a reaction to trump it's it's trump and his policies viewed through the lens of five very different people and uh again kind of filmed in their houses uh bet bet plays a woman who was arrested so hers is in a police uh interrogation room but um you know it, i don't know where that one was filmed but i think the rest yeah. of filmed probably in the actor's home um but i thought it was really good it's you know obviously for a certain audience if you're pro-trump you're gonna hate this movie um, but I, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. You can tell it was, and a lot of people just kind of thought it was, you know, it's just monologues. It's five monologues. And so a lot of people, I think were, we're not used to seeing that really in movies. And so I think a lot of people felt like it was kind of stagey and it was originally intended as a stage piece, but with COVID, it seemed like, Hey, there, here's something we can film and actually show to people. So that's what they did. Sarah Paulson actually probably has the least amount of time. You know, hers is, I think, the shortest monologue. But um, I think they were all really good. I was particularly captivated by Issa Rae's monologue, actually. She's just so good. And, you know, I love her, her. Story, she's amazing. And her story, uh, I, I'm curious to know if it was based on somebody true, because it's a really specific thing. It's a, it's a tale, basically, of somebody who grew up in a boarding school or grew up going to the same boarding school as Ivanka. And then years later being called by the to basically go in for a visit and having Ivanka use her as a prop, essentially. I have a black friend. I'm not racist is kind of the, the whole thing. And kind of that coming out of blue, coming out of the blue to this, uh, to this woman who hadn't really, you know, 
thought of Ivanka in a long time. So it's just, it's really well done. Caitlin Deaver too. Like she's so clearly the one right now, you know, like the, I don't want to say the it girl, but like, she's kind of just crushing it everywhere. I remember watching her on Justified years ago and thinking, oh, that kid is going <laughs> to go far. She's so talented. Yeah. So, so talented. So I'm glad she's, I'm glad she's kind of taken off. Yeah, she's, it's like she's huge. She's just signed on to a Hulu miniseries with uh, Michael Keaton. She's doing a lot of movies. She's just really, for the, for the younger um crowd i think she's kind of the one to watch i don't even want to say the watch because she's just been nominated for every award for unbelievable and you know yeah. kind of stuff already and she's like 25 at most like she's yeah. super um but really really great and she she's just so natural you know there's something about her that's kind of effortless in a way that's really cool um so i watched i would give that a recommendation i've otherwise been kind of in this uh space uh outer space thing i've been watching all these mini series i watched there was this part series on the challenger explosion that netflix just put out that's pretty new yeah uh, it's so riveting i watched that all in one day it's just riveting it's so it looks it yeah it's so and it's very you know it's heartbreaking we all remember the Challenger explosion. I think we can remember probably as kids experiencing that. Um, the thing I probably most deeply appreciated was that it was not like tragedy porn in any way. I don't remember okay. if they ever showed the Challenger exploding. I don't even think they like stopped the footage right before the explosion um, in like the very beginning of the first episode. And I don't know if they ever went back to it. They might have, like, from very far away, but they did not, you know, they did not exploit that. And they didn't make it something that would be hard to watch for people who are sensitive to things like that or, you know, have their family involved in that. You know, it was just, I thought it was really well done and really well put together. It's just another one of those things. I can't remember what we were talking about where we were like how did they get oh the last day talking about the michael jordan documentary right? it's like how do they have all this footage it seems like yeah. they have seconds of everybody involved in this thing on film and so it's kind of amazing to watch um so that i've watched the first two episodes speaking of netflix of the hillary swank miniseries away what do you think about that i have not I, i've been on the fence about starting it, it i mean She's going to Mars, right? It looks it looks like it's just going to be horribly depressing. Um, I'm only two episodes in. I am not sure what to make of it, to tell you the truth. I think she's good in it, and I think the actors in general are good. It's a little bit soap opera-y. It's a little bit like CW-ish. Interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. There's like sex scenes in the first episode where it's like, I don't know, it's got that like very W feel to to it for me. I, I guess I'm a little surprised that it's that the writing in the, at least in the first two episodes isn't a little better. I kind of am am surprised Larry Swank is involved in this to tell you the truth. Yeah, like they put oh. some money in the production. It, it looks good. It's just kind of a not a great script. I think there's just something kind of. Mm 
not connecting. But I'm going to continue. I'm not going to give up on it. It's not. It's neither in laughably bad or so bad that you just can't deal with it. It's just in the. I'm intrigued by this. Not the best thing I've ever seen. Not the worst. Um, and yeah. So I don't know if that's a tepid endorsement or not. Like I said, I'm going to keep going. But yeah. Did you see that she? Um... She is suing uh, the Screen Actors Guild. No, I didn't see that. Yeah, she filed a lawsuit against the Screen Actors Guild, taking basically taking them to court over their health insurance um, plan because um, she, she's claiming they're not covering uh, issues, you know, related to women's health, so gynecological issues. She's been having problems with cysts since 2015. But she released a statement... I don't want to paraphrase it because it's a pretty powerful statement, um, but I, I'll summarize it to at least say that, you know, she's calling them out for making it impossible for women to get the health care they need. And it's very clear that she's doing it for other people, not just herself. It's a really interesting statement. I will look it up. I, I hope I hope she's successful because yeah. women's yeah. health care is impossible. Well, yeah, hopefully she is successful with that. That seems like, I, I admire anybody who's like standing up for, it, it seems like, you know, now is a time where we're all kind of paying attention to things like this. So now is the time to do this too. Yeah. So, uh, and then the, the other thing that I watched related to the space program, I don't know if you ever watched it. And I don't know why I haven't watched it until now. I've been making my way through the old HBO From the Earth to the Moon miniseries. Oh, I've never seen it. I don't know why I didn't. I like have this weird, morbid fascination with NASA stuff. Like, if there's a movie about going to another planet, I am freaking there. And <laughs> I don't even like to fly an airplane, so I don't know what it is. If it's like living vicariously, I don't know what it is. But um, I think I avoided this one because, in my mind, I kind of like put it in the same category as the like Band of Brothers, the Pacific miniseries that HBO did. Uh -huh. Tom Hanks connection thing, which I, I do want to watch those at some point too. That's just a little bit more, you know, it's kind of like the Holocaust miniseries thing, you know, it's like, you know, it's not going to be pleasant to watch and it's going to be tough, but from the earth to the moon is not tough. I mean, like there are moments, but you know, like it's kind of fantastic. It's different than what I expected it to be though. Interesting. Because I didn't realize like Tom Hanks at the very beginning does like a talk to the camera about, you know, like kind of introduces the episode in a way. Um, but then it's, it's acted out. I, I guess I kind of assumed it was more documentary style and it's, you know, the stories, but it's acted out by actors. So each oh, episode, cool. it's like a mini series, basically. It's not documentary. It's a mini series. Oh, I had no idea. I thought it was a documentary. Yeah. No. Okay. Then. Exactly. That's, I don't know why we, both thought that, but yes, that's what I thought too. That it was like footage of the actual, you know, yeah, old old voyages. But it's not. Uh, you know what we need to watch? Have you watched it? The social dilemma. I have not. I've been. Putting that yeah, exactly. I've been putting it off as well. I'm like, I know I need to watch this, but I know that I'm going to be so disturbed. That <laughs> I just, I just need a minute. <laughs> yeah, I. I'm close enough to just like quitting my Facebook page as it is. Yeah. <laughs> for a few reasons. 
I'm not thrilled with Zuckerberg's stance on a lot of things in this election cycle. And it's just my thought right now, I'm seeing a lot of people leave and a lot of other people thinking about leaving. I'm going to hang on till the next, till November, till the election and see if things get better um, post that. It's just this torrent of negativity, you know? Yeah. And to a certain degree, it probably always was. Um, It's obviously in the Trump era just amplified and... Um, my hope is that, you know, if things go the way fingers crossed looks like it's going, um, then maybe things will get a little better. Uh, but I don't know. It's lost its luster for me. I do a, I do a live stream every Sunday night, which is another one of the reasons that I hang on to, to it. As an artist, especially as a singer or songwriter, I, I use it so much to promote gigs and stuff that it would hurt that end of things to not have that. But I don't know. Yeah, I'm not on there much. I rarely post. I've curated mine enough that mostly what shows up for me is like theater related or like Smithsonian magazine is like both. Um, and so that's nice. I try to stay away from the political stuff, but I I think I don't I don't really need it. But I have so many friends from different walks of life, and it's the place where I stay connected. Not necessarily to see what they're doing, um, because oftentimes we're so disconnected that they're not even showing up in my feed. But, like, you know, I have a really good friend from high school in California who every once in a while I reach out, and that's where I do it. Right. You know, people change their email addresses and phone numbers enough that it's a better place of contact. So that's the one reason I stay on, but it's tough. Yep. Yep. I can relate to that too. I bet, I bet just about everybody can. Yeah. That was the whole purpose behind it was staying connected to people who you, I, there are many people that I'm in somewhat regular contact with at this point that if I'm honest, I probably would not be without Facebook. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't know what's happening in a ton of people's lives. So yeah, there is some good, but it's just the the bad is starting to kind of, you know, measure up to the to the good. So I don't know. It's a it's a question for sure. Yeah. But anyway, well, um, we don't have any specific Merrill news. I did mention to you before we started filming that, that there's kind of one tangential related thing, which is that. The film we talked about that she is rumored to possibly be taking a role in, which is uh, Damien Chazelle's uh, piece. I forget what it's called at the moment. It starts with the C. Um, the one with Brad Pitt and Emma Stone. Oh, Babylon. Oh, they don't have, it's so weird. On the website version of IMDb, they don't have upcoming projects. It's only in that phone app. What's up with that? I don't know. That's weird. Yeah. But it is it is Babylon. Um, cool. So that that film, which she's rumored to be taking a supporting role in, that's the one with Brad Pitt and Emma Stone attached to it, um, is being pushed off. I guess it was going to be filmed later this year, this fall. So like right now, basically. And they bumped it to what is called early next year. So I don't know if that's January. I don't know if that's March. Uh, but early next year, it there's no real reason be for why it was being pushed back um there's always the question of whether it was covid related of course um the the whole thing now is uh 
like Brad Pitt, I guess, is filming another movie. And so you kind of wonder if, okay, well, that one's delayed now. Other, they'll fill up their calendars with other projects and maybe they have to bow out of that one. You know, sometimes there's reshuffling just based on schedules. So um, scheduling the nightmare. Yeah. So as we mentioned, Meryl was only, is only rumored to be part of it anyway. So we don't know uh, whether she's going to be in it, was ever going to be in it, uh, but we'll see. So that's not being filmed this fall as expected. Uh, I don't know if that's better or worse. Would you, I, if, if you're Meryl, are you interested in filming a movie during COVID or are you just going to wait out COVID? I don't know. I guess it depends on how concerned she is about catching it. I, I think film studios with insurance policies and everything else are having to be super cautious um, right. and have very strict you know, regulations and and procedures in place. Um, I would go ahead and do it, I think. But I don't know. I mean, Robert Pattinson tested positive for COVID on Batman. And that, I mean, when that happens, it's, I mean, it, that's a nightmare for filming. Right. The losses on that. Because you're talking, I mean, it, you're, you're at a minimum two weeks. And even then, it's longer. You're probably out a month. You're shutting down production. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. I don't either. I don't know either, but, um, and a lot of things are getting delayed now that, you know, are possibly even done just because they're thinking people won't go see them in the theater. West Side Story was the most recent one. They bumped that back an entire calendar year. I think that is a, I mean, nobody asked me, (laughs) but I think it's a terrible mistake. I mean, I think everyone is going into a super escapist mode. So you notice like in the fashion world, all of the clothes are like floral and very romantic and sort of whimsical. And then everyone, everyone's leaning into fantasy and musicals. You look at the success of Hamilton on Disney plus like they need to release that on demand. People would pay. I would, I think they would. And I, I just, you know, December 2021 is a long time. Yeah, I don't know. It. I, I feel kind of two ways about it. It sort of depends on whether or not... It, Spielberg seems like the type who's a go-see-this-in-the-theaters type. And my guess is that exclusively what this is about. For sure. I get that. And I'm not sure they've done... Like, they, they released Mulan with a premium. There were issues with that. But so, <laughs> anyway, but I they haven't released Disney hasn't released their numbers I don't think yet. So I don't think anyone's extraordinarily confident that that sort of on demand with a premium price attached to movies is going to make back the money the, right. uh, the cost of production and so I think everybody's quite hesitant but I think the illusion is that they think they'll do that in a movie theater by December 2021. I just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right. I don't know. It's it's wild. The only other thing that I guess, again, could be tangential Merrill-related news is actually that. I mean, hypothetically, that opens up a spot in probable awards show yeah. stuff this year. I'm sure... I'm sure I can remember the young woman who's playing Maria, her name. She's new. I think this is her debut. Um I'm guessing she would have been, you know, in the running for one of those five lead spots. And maybe it opens it up for Meryl if 
she has a great performance in the prom or let them all talk. Um, you know, people look at the, I can't, I just looked at an early predictions list, which at this point in the season is kind of funny, but um, Michelle Pfeiffer is getting rave reviews for one of her films and she's never won. Um, there's a few others. I don't remember what else is, whatever, whatever else is in there. I guess I should look that up, but you know, it listed the five, and the, and the young woman who's playing Maria was at the number five spot. Again, this is before anybody has even seen these movies. It's all, right. you know. But, uh, you know, it's just such a funny year that anything could really happen at this point. So something like The Prom, or we don't know anything about Let Them All Talk. We literally know nothing about that movie, so it's hard to say what even that is. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's there's probably a little bit more of a chance that Meryl could slot into one of those awards uh, thing because of this. My guess, I mean, they've already announced a release date for the prom. And because that was always going to be a Netflix thing, I don't see that moving anywhere. Let Them All Talk was going to be is going to be an HBO Max thing. I don't think that's going anywhere. So, you know. Yeah, I'm excited for both of those. I'm I'm I don't know about everybody else, but I'm starving for content. You know, every once in a while, they'll do early access release on Amazon, but most of them are crap. <laughs> and every once in a while, and I think that's why everyone's watching Enola Holmes. It's right. like, oh, oh my gosh, they're releasing something that looks of quality that I want to sit down and spend two hours watching. And the other thing, too, is I am more picky now than I ever was before because it's basically the only thing I have to do for fun. Right. I mean, I know none of us have a social life anymore. Netflix is it. And I, my tolerance for crap has gotten a lot lower. Yeah. Yeah. I, it'll be interesting seeing, you know, some of the stuff that is, I, you know, I just pulled up some of these movies that are in the, again, nobody's seen them, but possibly, um, you know, possibly going to be in the running. There's a movie called De Five Bloods with, uh, it's oh, yeah. like, Chadwick Boseman, Delroy Lindo. I don't know if that was released. It looks like it was supposed to be out on June 12th. It is. It's on Netflix. Okay. So yeah. that's, a, uh, there's a movie called The Father with Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman. I think she's one of those who's probably in the running for another Academy Award nomination, as is he. Uh, the Wes Anderson movie, The French Patch, which has a huge cast. One that I'm curious about, um, I don't know if you've heard anything about it, is... Ooh. Oh, <laughs> Oh, that's an amazing sound effect. <laughs> Please leave that in the recording. It sounded, like, God, it sounded like someone was heckling you. Ooh. <laughs> I will leave that in. I'll let you made it in, buddy. Um, is a Hillbilly Elegy, that one with uh, Amy Adams and Glenn Close. Oh, you know what? I haven't. I, I, is it out? No, it's, it's supposed to be out on Netflix this fall. Okay. I think that one's been delayed once or twice. It's directed by Ron Howard, um, adapted from a book. Um, and it's, you know, Amy Adams and Glenn Close lead in supporting, and they're kind of considered as, like, the two who are kind of most due for Academy Awards. Um, yeah. Boy, Netflix is getting everything. They have a David Fincher movie coming out this fall called Mank which is, uh, like I said, David Fincher with Gary Oldman, Amanda Seyfried, uh, Lily Collins, uh, News of the World with uh, Tom Hanks. That looks like it might be a movie theater thing. So there's, you know, my uh, 
there's there's a few things that are still probably coming out. It looks like the season. Uh, oh, Trials of the Chicago Seven. I know we talked oh. in a recent episode about the Aaron Sorkin issues, um, but. You know, there are some movies that I'm really, really excited for yet. Um, Ammo, the one with Kate Winslet and Sharonin, um, that looks really great. Mm, that looks so good. I've heard, I've heard good things about that. Yeah, Dune with Timothy. I, I yeah. bet it's going to be a theatrical release. It probably should be. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, so there's there's a number of interesting projects coming out. Um, it'll be just whether or not it's kind of a, a mad dash to get them in before award stuff. And Netflix has a whole bunch. Maybe the Academy Awards should be hosted on Netflix this year. I know, right? Uh, people might actually watch it. Yeah, that's true. Um, actually, that's one thing. As somebody who, who loves those shows, I wish somebody would, like, but as lame as it sounds, I wish somebody would post the, you know, Oscars and the Golden Globes. I'd go back and watch the 1989 Oscars. I love oh, that. I, I would watch. I would watch. I would watch any of the Oscars from that like golden period when Billy Crystal and and Whoopi Goldberg and did Robin Williams do it one year? Maybe I don't think he ever hosted. It was like uh, that. He that blame Canada. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, that. Um, Steve Martin did it a couple times, John Stewart, Chris Rock, even Ellen did it. I guess that was kind of early 2000s. But yeah, it was kind of Billy Crystal and Whoopi Goldberg for a while. And then every once in a while they try, you know, somebody else. But the, they were kind of the the two. It would ricochet between for a while. David yeah. Letter that one year. Oh yeah, Uma, Oprah, Uma, Oprah. Yeah, yeah famous, infamous. <laughs> Uh, well shall we dive in with the french lieutenant's woman i think so i think we should do it so we're here to talk about 19 now that we're half an hour in as always (laughs) we're going to talk about the 1981 uh drama french lieutenant's woman uh yeah do you want to do a synopsis how do we get this one started oh lord How does one do a synopsis about this movie? This this movie is about, oh, how do I do this? How do I set this up? Okay, so um, the film opens and they are making a movie within the movie. And you are introduced to Meryl Streep's uh, character. The actor is, her name's Anna, right? Anna? Yeah. Anna. Anna and what is his name in the future in the present tense? Oh, you know what? I should look to Sarah and Charles and Anna. Anyway, it's Jeremy Irons. He is a fellow actor in the film, and they are making the film The French Lieutenant's Woman. And then you sort of flash into as if it's the reality. Um of the French Lieutenant's Woman and Meryl Streep and Jeremy Irons also play Sarah and Charles, this sort of Victorian, uh, I would say stifled. Yeah. Stifled lovers. Anyway, there's a whole backstory. (laughs) This is like the worst plot description (laughs) ever. I'm so sorry, everybody. No, it's Uh, good. uh, Meryl Streep plays Sarah Woodruff in the sort of Victorian part of the story who is a sort of mysterious, sad figure 
who everyone calls the French lieutenant's woman because she has supposedly been ruined by this French officer and left. And she is supposedly waiting for him longingly in line. And Jeremy Irons is a, um, a scientist in the area who has fallen for a local merchant's trader's daughter and proposed to her. And he sort of comes across Meryl Streep's character walking one day and is sort of just taken by her and ends up slowly becoming obsessed with her and falling in love with her and uh, their lives fall apart. (laughs) That is coupled with a parallel storyline where Meryl Streep and Jeremy Irons play the actors playing these characters and they are also in present day and they are also having an affair on set. So you get this sort of dual romance happening. Yes. Yeah, that's nicely done. Mike is the name of uh, the of the contemporary. That took a lot of concentration. <laughs> yeah, it's it's basically a dual. There's two storylines going on. Yeah. Um, this is a film that I've seen a few times, and I've watched it. I think now three times for this, um, and I found it to be each viewing. It may be because. You know, maybe because I'm not that bright or maybe because the movie is a little bit complicated. Uh, it's not overly complicated. I think people can get it if they watch the movie, you know. But um, it's definitely a movie that you catch more with each viewing. You kind of pick up on, oh, 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 you know. And uh, so I, I found the multiple viewings to be very helpful. Yeah, I can see that. I just watched it once for today. I'd seen it before, but truly remembered nothing about it but the the dual storylines and and the you know the 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 costuming and the visuals yeah there are some iconic shots is in particular of Meryl kind of on that I don't even know what to call it not a pier but that kind of the first time you kind of get a full look at Meryl's character is is this very heightened moment you know there's the wind and rain just kind of blowing behind her and she turns around in this kind of cloak with this hood on it and it's, you know, I don't know, the the film, the, the way it was shot is just kind of very interesting and very kind of old fashioned in that moment. And um, yeah, anyway, what is your, what did you think? What is your take on this film? You know what? I don't know, <laughs> which is like the worst answer ever. I need to, I need to watch it again. So one thing I can tell you is that I was like, I enjoyed it. Like I was in it. I I wanted to see what was going to happen next. I felt actually more connected to and on board with the present storyline with Anna and Mike than I did with the Sarah and Charles storyline. I, I think, th- and Meryl Streep has spoken about this in interviews too. Actually, I, I think it's I think it's by virtue of the script and the way it's structured. So that like the very first scene of the film, you know they're making a film. So there's always there was always a part of me, even though we couldn't see the camera crew and we weren't like stopping takes or anything like that. Like at some point you're just supposed to dive into the the sort of Victorian era storyline as if it's real. But there's always this thing in the back of my mind that I know that it's not. Yeah, I can see that. I think maybe that's it. Also, 
and then this is this has to do, I think, with the fact that this was made in 1981, and it's something I noticed in Plenty, which we haven't done an episode on yet, um, and so I won't talk about that at length. But um, it's bordering on melodrama, yeah, in the performances, and and so I I I. <laughs> it was really bordering on comical for me at some point at, yeah. at a few points where I was like, Ooh. <laughs> out of curiosity, not to, not to dive in too much, but was Ernestina, the woman who played Ernestina playing into that at all? Absolutely. She's the one who Charles is engaged to, who he kind of, well, not kind of, he, he breaks it off with her because he's so intrigued by Meryl's character she seems to me to be in a different movie than the rest of them. And even her costuming. It's like yeah. bright, garish colors. Yeah, very, very. And and even, um, and, and this is my, <laughs> this just means I'm cynical. But even that first shot when she's standing out on the, I'm not yeah. sure that, but, you know, the big stone, the stone walls that break the ocean in lime, I suppose. Um, that big sweeping shot with the melodramatic music and, and Jeremy Irons goes out to check on her to make sure she's okay. And she turns back with this very, very dramatic look. And I just, I giggled a little. I won't lie. <laughs> it, I, yeah, I guess I can see that. I I need to rewatch it. I, I will say that with every viewing, I liked this movie more and more. I believe that because I really like it too. I think now that I know what it is, I can buy in. Yeah. And now I need to go watch it again. No, I, I really like this movie and I like her. I like Meryl's performance in it a whole lot. Um, she seems very natural, the most natural of anybody. And actually, I think Jeremy Irons is very good in this movie too. Mm -hmm. I think. And, you know, I think the two of them really play well together. I mean, I feel like there's legitimate chemistry kind of in both in both storylines. It's kind of most everybody around them. And I don't mean like the, the woman who plays Ernestina, her name is Lindsay Baxter. It's not a bad performance. It's just a very stylized performance in a movie in which there aren't very many people giving stylized performances. Right. Um, as you mentioned, there is kind of uh, cinematography that gives Meryl's character some moments like that. And I guess she does have a few moments like that really long sweeping monologue she has in the woods, which is like this seven, eight minute scene where she basically just has a super long monologue. There are stylized moments in there. You know, there are some very, uh, not over the top, but some very, is she, and I think one of the things that's interesting to me is she never has stylized moments. She's always very, very real when she's playing um, the actress, Anna. When she's playing Anna, she's yeah. always very, it's just like watching Meryl. Yeah. But she's stylized in moments uh, when she's playing Sarah. And so, you know, it's a choice, obviously. It's not, I don't know. It's it's a very intriguing thing that they're doing here. But the this is a based on a book that came out in, I think, 1969, something like that, by John Fowles. And it was a big book. It was very successful. And like right off the bat, people wanted to film it. It went through a, several writers, several different directors. Um, John Fowles wanted uh, Helen Mirren to play the role that Meryl played. There were a couple other people up for each role. And um, it just seems like 
they, so they, I guess, said this this is really not filmable. They didn't think the book could be adapted. And I think Harold Pinter, who did the screenplay, did a really kind of remarkable job with it because it's, I, I think that kind of juxtaposition and the going back and forth between the two is actually what makes this movie really interesting. Like, I think if you had one story without the other, I wouldn't like this movie very much. But having both of them in there, I don't know, it kind of elevated the material. I agree because I think the juxtaposition allows you to see it highlights it it really highlights and brings to the surface the concepts they're dealing with because and I haven't read the book but from what I know about it um that's that's part of what gives the book its power that you're really exploring I don't know the cultural layer on top of romance like what are our cultural norms uh, in that regard. And I think that's what's so beautiful about their performances is that they are so natural and not stylized at all sort of in that modern period and you can connect to them quite well. And then they, um, they're they very Victorian. right? And I think that's where the melodrama comes from. I don't think it's inappropriate to have it in there. It makes sense when you are looking at that era and looking at a romance during that time period and you know this idea of the fallen woman and reputations being ruined and and how much that's changed over time uh, i don't know i'm sort of rambling at this point but i i uh i you just wouldn't i don't think you'd understand the commentary on it without the two dual storylines going on in different in two different periods yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, it also kind of, it bears mentioning that it's, I think this kind of goes back to even the plot synopsis thing, because it is complicated almost exclusively because of the dual storyline. Like, if you had to break down uh, Mike and Anna, it's a very simple story. They're actors filming a movie who, they're each married to other people, they end up having an affair on the film, he wants to continue to be with her, she doesn't want to. She goes back to her husband after the film is done. That's that story. Like, that's it. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> the other story is a little bit more complicated, but I mean, I could do that one in under a minute, too. You know what I mean? It's just that it's going back and forth between these two things. Right. Um, it's not so much that the plot is so elevated and so convoluted, which actually I'm thankful for because especially in period pieces, sometimes it's kind of like I have these, I can only understand movies that are like real, you know, realism. If it's, if it's before, you know, 1900, or if it's set in a galaxy far, far away, I have no idea what the fuck is happening in any given movie. But if it's like real people, yeah, great. And so this one, I don't know, it's not, it's not hard to follow. It's just... Yeah, it's two, it's kind of two different styles in one movie. I kind of mm-hmm. like it. Yeah, I like it too. I like I like it a lot. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, I can really- definitely I can definitely see why this was uh, you know, a film that people were excited to make and it was a pretty big hit too. This movie did so it was on a budget of $8 million and the box office was uh, about $27 million. But that's $27 million in 1981. I'm not exactly sure what inflation is, but that's close to $100 million now, I would say. Yeah, 
you know, like this movie was a pretty big hit for the time. I have a really funny story about this movie. So my mom, my mom and dad went to Boston in 1981 to visit my aunt, my dad's sister. And they all decided to go see the French Lieutenant's Woman in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. And they got to the movie theater and my dad was like, peace out. You guys have fun going to see the French Lieutenant's Woman. I'm going to go see this other movie called Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark next door. And he left He left my mom and my aunt to French Lieutenant's Woman. And, you know, you think about that. It was the first Indiana Jones. And it really was towards the beginning of Steven Spielberg's career. So he had made some great movies up to that point and really fun movies. But like Indiana Jones with its own, right? <laughs> own B. So of course, you know, French Lieutenant's Woman. It's pretty, um, it's pretty somber. It's yeah. pretty, it's pretty heavy duty. Um, even though I would argue it has a happy ending. Um, so they came out. My mom and my aunt came out, and they were, they had read the book and were obsessed with it. And you know, when you do that you tend to be unhappy with the, an ab- adaptation, especially when you've just come off of a book. Anyway, they come, they came out super disgruntled. And my dad was like, yeah, that was the greatest I've ever seen. <laughs> so I think that movie continues to have a, a be a sore spot for my mother. <laughs> interesting. Well, it is, uh, you know, it is interesting when pe- for this one, because, like, yeah, if you were, if you liked the book, first of all, there was no actor-actress. It wasn't a dual storyline in the book. It's right. it's the historian story. It's not the actor and actor don't With appear. Multiple but endings. Yes. Right? He, yeah. he wrote at the end two or, it might have even been three alternate endings, which at the time, I don't know if anybody had ever done, but he basically told the readers, choose whichever ending you like the best, which is kind of crazy, kind of cool. Um, and you know, I don't know, I guess I don't know how I feel about that. It's an interesting trick, but doing this setup to it with having actors and actress and kind of turning it meta before meta was really a concept, um, it, it allowed to see multiple endings because I don't know how much we want to talk about the ending. I'll, I'll just say somewhat spoilery. One of the endings is happy. The other is not. And so, you know, like there's a little bit of you know, non-parallel there. That's kind of the one place where it differs really is how it ends and whether people end up together or not. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I don't know. This was, it's an interesting movie. Okay. So uh, Jeremy Irons was very new at this point. He'd done a lot of TV. He'd done a lot of BBC uh, stuff. But he had this was he had he had a very tiny role. He was like, you know, eight or ninth in the supporting category in another movie. I can't remember what it was called, but this is for sure his first lead role. Um, Meryl, really, in terms of lead roles, this is kind of her first lead as well. Um, She had done The Seduction of Joe Tynan and she'd won an Oscar for Kramer versus Kramer, uh, which was the one that came right before this. She'd done Julia in Manhattan, but. Uh, this is really her first lead role. And uh, so, you know, two stars who at the time were probably not considered bankable by any real stretch. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of interesting that they were able to make this movie with these two people. I mean, obviously, Meryl had, they she both had, 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 
but she'd won an Oscar, so she was a star, but not, you know, hadn't been tested in that way before. Right. So how did you, did, did any of that, for lack of a kind of cliche question, did it seem like they knew what they were doing? Did it seem like they were up for this challenge to you? Yeah, I mean, I can't, I couldn't tell the difference between their performance in that movie and their performance in a film now. I mean, they're just pros. Right. And they were so well trained. I mean, they're both stage actors. He, he came from, from theaters, very well trained. He's great. I love Jeremy Irons so much. <laughs> and I feel like he looked 70 when he was 30 and looks 30 when he's 70. The man just looks the same eternally. Yep. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I don't, I can't think of a performance of his that I don't like. There's something, there is something really fresh about this performance, probably because it's his first. Right. That's really lovely. Yeah. There were, um, I have multiple versions of this on DVD. They turned this into uh, a Criterion collection, uh, which is a kind of specific DVD and uh, Blu-ray set that is released. Every month they release three or four titles in Criterion. And they're really nicely curated. They always have really, uh, you know, nice transfers to them. So the picture and sound quality is as good as the film is probably going to ever be. And uh, it usually has a wealth of, you know, there's essays included by film historians. There's kind of, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the discs usually to warrant getting this this particular version. And so it had some interesting um, interviews with with Merrill and Jeremy Irons recently, you know, when they put out this Criterion Collection. So probably within the last, for sure within the last 10 years, you know, probably 2014, 15, they sat down for interviews, as did Carol Reese, uh, the the director of this film. And, uh, you know, they were just talking about, you know, Jeremy Irons, I guess in his audition basically said, I really want to do this movie, but I think you need a star. <laughs> you know, I think he basically was like, I don't think you're going to be able to get this movie made with me. And there were a lot of other people who were, you know, at one point or another, you know, affiliated with this. I think I read Robert Redford, among others, were kind of, you know, up for the role at a certain point. There were a number of, of women up for Meryl's role. Um, there was a list here at one point. Uh, not a lot of people who uh, I necessarily would, would think of, um, but it, it just kind of is amazing to me that they that they were able to do this. But Meryl, I guess, too, kind of had this, she said anyway, had this attitude of, I don't really know how we're going to do this, but I'm delighted to have the opportunity kind of feel to it. Like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know if this is really going to work, but it's going to be a lot of fun to try. Um, and I don't know. It just, I, I think it really works. I like this one. This is another really good one in her filmography, I think. Um, she did an interview on Graham Norton. I think it was when she did um, Florence Foster Jenkins. Mm-hmm. And she, he asked her if there, Graham Norton asked her if there were any, any performances she wished that she wasn't very pleased with. And um, she said, yes, of course, I'm not going to tell you what they are. And then she actually, she actually said this one. I've, I've read that. I didn't watch that interview. Did she say anything else about it? 
Yeah, she said she, she acknowledged that she was giving herself a little bit of an out is, is, were her words, but that it had to do with the structure of the script that she was playing a character within this, you know, she was playing a character in a story within the story. Right. Um, and I got the impression that she struggled more with the Sarah side of things. Um, than she did with the honest side of things, but she she just she, she wasn't very specific. She just said, you know, I was young and and didn't quite just couldn't quite get a handle on it the way I would have liked to. Yeah. Which is interesting. I I think so too. It's interesting watching her revisit her like past films. She did this other, it was, it was a much sillier bit, but she, during an appearance on Jimmy Kimmel's show, uh, it was, you know, she'd been just nominated for her 20th or something. And so he said in under, in a minute, how many of those films can you name? Which ones were you nominated for? And this was the first one that came out of her mouth. Um, and there was, there were a couple other moments where uh, he, he she doesn't seem to remember, which is amazing if you think about it. She's she's been nominated so often that she doesn't even remember which one she was nominated for and which one she wasn't. And at one point he said, "Do you remember your first nomination?" And she said, "Oh, it had to be French Lieutenant's Woman." And he said, "No, it was The Deer Hunter." I mean, she'd already won before this. She had multiple <laughs> nominations before this and she couldn't remember that she thought this was her first nomination you know what i think though it must all blend together because it's not i mean if it was just the oscars every year but it's so many i mean the ones we see but there are so many that aren't televised that they're nominated for and attend or are part of and i think it just all starts to blur together but that's very funny you would think she would at least remember her first right and um the there is one it actually is really funny she gets very stressed out playing the game when she's trying to list off of them and you can kind of see that she tries going chronologically at first she doesn't name anything after like 1985 it's all like those early she doesn't even name very many of them but then uh she says a cry in the dark and he says no which i think is a mistake i think she actually was nominated for yeah that, correctly but i think he says no and she screams out why in this really funny way. <laughs> like she had been robbed and was just now getting pissed about it, you know, years later. She's mad. Uh, it, it really is funny, but it, you know, yeah, she, it, it is it's such an amazing career when you think of it that like years later, she's trying to remember the order and the order doesn't matter. But um, one thing that I wanted to mention, as long as we're talking about the awards stuff, she was nominated uh, for Best Actress in 1982 for this movie. Uh, she lost that to, to Catherine Hepburn's On Golden Pond win, which was her, uh, I think, last win. I think it was number four for her, right? I think Catherine has four. I think so. Um, so the other the other nominees in that category were Diane Keaton for Reds, Marsha Mason for Only When I Laugh, Susan Sarandon for Atlantic City, and then, of course, Meryl for French Lieutenant's Woman. Interestingly enough, she won the Golden Globe that year in the same category. She beat Katherine Hepburn and most of the same um, nominees. But, and I, I didn't look into this enough, there must have, the, the timing of the BAFTAs and the American Academy Awards 
at least at that point, must have been very different because she won the BAFTA for this in 1981, the year it was released. And almost none of the same, actually none of the same nominees are there. So Catherine Hepburn won in 1982, the BAFTA for On Golden Pond. So I don't know how that works. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe French Lieutenant's Woman was released a lot earlier in the UK or something. I don't know. But so she did win the BAFTA and she won the Golden Globe for this, but not the Oscar. And I was just thinking in retrospect, I mean, it's I, I it's been a long time since I watched On Golden Pond. So I don't remember how Catherine Hepburn's oh. performance at compares. But, you know, imagine, uh, imagine retrospectively, if they had gone with Meryl Streep, and there's no way the year after that she's not going to win for Sophie's Choice. You know, she would have won right. three Oscars within four years. Yeah. I mean, Catherine Hepburn's performance in On Golden Pond is really beautiful. And the movie is beautiful. I'm not sure she's super outside her wheelhouse. But, uh, but I, I, you know, the Academy also sort of knows when somebody is hitting their swan song. And that movie in general was just really powerful. It probably swayed people quite a bit. Yeah. And I, I think French Lieutenant's Woman is, because of the dual storyline, it's quite cerebral. And you can't emotionally invest in it the way you can on Golden Pond. Uh, because the structure won't let you. That probably hindered it a bit in the awards sweep. Just because the Oscars loves a good tug at your heartstrings. Yeah. Although it's also a period movie, which they they seem to usually be about too. I mean, the Oscars have sure. always been an older, uh, an older voting block than like the Golden Globes. Yeah. So it's interesting that Meryl won the Golden Globes, but not the Oscars. Yeah, it's very interesting to hear her talk about that performance. And then also, I watched an interview where she where she talked about working with Carol Reese and that he was a very sort of gentle director that he never, um, he would never really demand, he would never really force what he wanted out of them. He was very much a guiding director and let them sort of find their way creatively. And it's so funny because when I watched the film, she has this one line where he says something to the effect of you're an extraordinary woman there in the barn. And she looks at him and she says, yes, I am an extraordinary woman. Yeah. And, for me, an audience member, it was a super awkward moment. I was like, what do you mean by that response? Like, I couldn't quite get a gauge on it. And then come to find out that was actually a real point of struggle for her. Yeah. And she couldn't get it. And it made me think of our interview with Fred Skepsi because he talked about watching her work. And she was so expert that, and and I'm not sure if anyone could hear this part. I hope you could, but I'm going to recap it because it was it was a story worth listening to about how she was such an expert at what she did that that he would make a tweak and that she would come in and do the scene again and it would have the same time stamp on it everything would be the same except for those few things that that he wanted altered and that you could that's how clear and delineated her choices were and when you have an actor that good you really as an, again, as an audience member with a background in acting who's watched Meryl Streep for so long, I can see when she's off. And it's so tiny. 
and I and I just it 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 makes me so empathetic to actors because it's yeah. such a hard job. It's so hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And even Meryl Streep is gonna have those moments. You and I have both had those moments on stage too. We talk about that where like sometimes you don't know what to make of that moment. Actually, she she talks about that exact thing that you were talking about, that moment in the on the mm. interview that you did for the criterion. And Jeremy Irons did not that specific moment, but he said something like, you know, he's not one of those directors who really brings out the best in his actors. And then he kind of, he didn't mean it in a negative way. He kind of like tried to backtrack almost and say, but he's, you know, like such a pleasure to work with. And they, they all said things, you know, complimentary about, you know, each of the three of them. And they kind of showed these pictures of the three of them on set. And it, he said that they were basically just like the three of them were really kind of this, this team that really worked together and got along very nicely and everything. But yeah, she, she talked about that exact moment on the, on the interview that I listened to as well, where she was talking about just not knowing how to make that moment work and not feeling like she ever really solved that problem. And um, it is kind of a funny line. You would think at a certain point, just changing the line. I mean, you don't want to change her old Pinter, I guess, but like, I don't know. At a certain point, if it's not working, you got to do something pretty well, drastic. Right, and that's where collaboration comes in. I mean, I don't know if Harold Penter was on set, but you see an actor struggling like that, and and it's not serving your script. Yeah. For that to happen, and it's not serving the film. And there's a point where you sit down with your actor and your director, and you collaborate on making a change that feels good. I mean, it's. She was already, even though this was not, um, you know, well into her career, she had already won an Oscar. She already was clearly so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, you just, like, when you have somebody that talented, I'm just a big proponent of throwing them a bone. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Like, doing what you can to help them, because if it's not working, there's a reason. If Meryl Streep can't make it work, there is a reason, and it's not her. (laughs) And actually, it brings up something that I don't know that we have ever really talked about in this podcast, and we're almost 50 episodes in, which is that, like, the criticism that some people have of Meryl, including Katherine Hepburn, this was always what she, you know, I don't know if you ever heard this, but somebody asked Katherine Hepburn what she thought of Meryl Streep and her acting, and her response to it was click, click, click meaning that she's a very technical actress and that you can kind of like see the wheels turning in her head and what you just described with with Fred's story that's yeah. the that's the mark of somebody who's technically I mean beyond gifted that's that's like a savant if you're that technical and can do it that well um but what her critics have said I don't find this to be true I wouldn't be hosting a podcast about Meryl Streep I think if I did but they say she sacrifices sometimes a little bit of warmth that she kind of hits these technical notes, right. But her performances aren't always that there's maybe a coldness that goes along with that instead of some warmth. And, you know, I guess maybe this is an example of one of her more technical performances, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that she is very technical and I don't mean, and I don't say that um, as any sort of uh, insult. I think, I think that's why I love her so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love her technique. 
and her technicality. And I think I haven't ever perceived a, a loss in warmth. I think some of that may have to do with the role she's choosing. But no, I mean, watching Meryl Streep perform is not the same as watching Heath Ledger play the Joker. Right. But I don't personally, and this is absolute personal preference, I could see that Heath Ledger was blurring lines between his own reality and the role. And there's something quite volatile and dangerous in that when an actor does that. And it does create these really powerful powerhouse performances. I think I find myself being very insecure watching those performances because I, and they also are quite inconsistent. Like somebody might nail it in one film and then not quite be able to conjure that because the technique's not behind it. I feel much safer in Meryl Streep's hands as an audience member. Like I know I'm always going to be taken care of and she's going to, and not in a, not in a warm fuzzy way. Um, you know, she's just always going to deliver. Right. Yeah. One of the other moments I wanted to, to mention is uh, again, I keep going back to this criterion thing, but it, she said something that to me was so interesting, which is that she said that there was a moment in this film that happened that, uh, Mike Nichols told Meryl repeatedly was the reason he wanted to work with her. And of course that started a really long collaboration. They worked on a number of films, but he said it was specifically a moment in this film. And I'm curious if it, if this moment stuck out to you at all, it's very near the end of the movie. It's kind of the last real scene between Charles and Sarah. So just for some context, Sarah, basically Charles breaks off his engagement with Ernestina uh, in order to be with Sarah. And then Sarah says, Sarah, Sarah kind of disappears for three years. And he eventually tracks her down. Um, and this whole time, because of things that she said earlier in the film, there's this whole kind of unique, I guess it's, you know, it kind of goes with the times, but there's all this talk throughout this movie of like prostitution in London. And basically she she says, you know, if I'm ever gone, that's what I'm going to do. It's just because there are so many prostitutes in London. There's like 80,000 prostitutes or something. And so basically she says, that's, that's what I will do if I'm ever in a situation in which I'm elsewhere. And so that's what he has assumed that she has done. But he eventually tracks her down and she's, she's basically living in a house and being a nanny to this other couple. And she's kind of taken up with her own artwork and is le is living this somewhat idyllic life in some ways. She's still, I think, relatively lonely, but um, he tracks her down and they have this kind of strange fight uh, in which he, he's angry at her for just abandoning him and not giving him any like lead on where she may be or if she's okay but he eventually forgives her and they make up and they do end up together. But there's this kind of scene where he, he doesn't really hit her, but he, he kind of shoves her and she falls down. It's like these two stairs. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh, and yeah. When, when she hits the ground, her reaction is to laugh a little bit. She does. It's not like a full on laugh, but she, they kind of smile and there's this moment where they kind of smile and look at each other. And I think my interpretation of that moment, I may be way off, is that we're, we're watching 
really Mike and Anna play this scene. And there's this moment in the filming where he basically is turning to Anna and saying like, are you okay? Do we need to stop? And she just smiles. And so they continue with the scene. That's my interpretation of it. I may be off, but that, I think I, I don't know what else to make of that scene because if you shove somebody and their response is to smile at you in that way, I don't know. It, it was so interesting that moment because it plays out the exact opposite of how you like, there's this buildup of tension that leads to somebody being shoved. And then it's like dissipated by this kind of unexpected reaction. And it's just like, everything is gone and now they can kind of forgive, get back together and move on, you know? Yeah. Um, I was struck, you know, I didn't notice the smile, um, but I was struck, I, I must have somewhere in the back of my head because again, like you said, it's an expected reaction right. and he immediately feels really terrible, but some, something about her reaction to it allowed him to soften. He gets so close to her to check on her. And then as she sits up, there is so much warmth and chemistry and connection between the two of them like in this really sort of unexpected, powerful way um, that, that I didn't, that I didn't really expect to come after a shove and sort of, I mean, he's, he's quite volatile in that scene. He's really sort of lost it. Right. Um, and he's really kept a lid on it the whole movie. Right. And is just raging at her, but it's almost like, and I think this is Jeremy Irons' gift, is that he's raging at her, but you just get the sense that he's just like a lost puppy in love, and he's raging at her because he missed her so much. And right. he just was so upset by the whole situation, and he's, um, he's able to pull that warmth through. The rage. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like that scene. It's one of my favorite in the movie. Interesting. It, it's interesting, too, because, you know, Jeremy Irons, one of the other things he said in his interview was that, you know, it went along with his comment that he was telling Carol Reese that he thought he was going to need a bigger star than himself to be in this movie. And he said that one of the things that really sold him, I guess Carol Reese saw him in a like BBC movie and TV adaptation of something. And so Carol Reese wanted to wanted him to be in the movie and he wasn't sure that he was a big enough star to do it. But he said one of the things that kind of convinced Carol Reese that he really was the right person for it was he said his interpretation of the character was that he didn't really care if the audience liked him or not. And he felt like other actors were going to make were going to need the audience to like Mike slash Charles more. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, I mean, there are definitely some gender issues that exist in both the Victorian era and, you know, 1981. Things are different now. But at no moment did I not like Jeremy Irons in this movie. You know what I mean? Like, I, it's, he's, there's something about him that's so likable. And I, 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 that's such an interesting take on it because I, I guess that would be one thing to ask him maybe is like, why did you think people wouldn't like you? You were perfectly likable in this movie. Yeah. To totally. Yeah. And like, and, and, and for no good reason. Right. I mean, he's really, I mean, his Victorian character is a little more sympathetic in that he try. I mean, he tries really hard to do the right thing and really right. gets overtaken right. uh, by his own, his own emotional state. And then after, after he, he sort of 
after he cheats on his fiance with Meryl Streep, he then again tries to do the right thing and go like fix it. Um, and is and so his character is quite sympathetic. I think his modern day character is less should be less sympathetic. He's not right. Right. For whatever reason. Um, that was actually one of my favorite moments in the film. He's not even in the scene is when Meryl Streep as Anna, um, Jeremy Irons wife. Yeah. Um, has, they have a party at their house, a small cast cast party. And Anna goes up to his wife and says, I love your garden. She goes, I'm quite envious of you. And she says, why? She goes, Oh, well, because of your garden. And then they have this conversation about whether or not he helps her. <laughs> she says he's quite lazy, actually. And the reality sets in, right? They're having this very, like, sort of torrid affair. They're cheating on their significant others. There's so much passion. It's quite romantic and glorious. And then the reality of it is that he's actually probably quite lazy and selfish. Right. <laughs> I, just, I love that scene too. I, I after watching it a few times, I was struck by and it's I you know it's partially Meryl's choice. I'm sure partially the you know directing and all of that. But she is so tentative. She like slowly steps towards her. It, it's like she, I my whole thing is like her uh, her husband David or David. Uh-huh. They pronounce a couple different ways. You can tell he knows she's having an affair. Like, he is really suspicious and kind of just, I would say, kind of pissy, except he kind of has a right to not be thrilled, right? I mean, like, his wife is having an affair. So I don't really like her husband, David, but also I kind of get it, like, you know, whatever. Um, and I get the sense too that her, I forget what her, what, uh, Mike's wife's name is, but it seems like she kind of is suspicious too. Sonia. Yeah. And Sonia's played by Penelope Wilson. And if we have any, um, any Downton Abbey fans out there, she played Matthew's mother. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, um, I wish I remember her name. She's great. She's so good. And I, it was nice. This actually, this movie is packed full of powerhouse British actors. It's great. It's a smorgasbord. It is one of those, uh, one of the reviews that was, I remember saying, you know, it, it was complimentary of both of them. And then said, I'm paraphrasing, but they basically said it also has a number of amazing supporting performances that only London seems to turn out. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of true. Peter Vaughn plays Ernestina's father. And I tell you, that man just looked, he just never aged. He was like, he was that age for eternity until he just, uh, he's also in Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Liz Smith is in this. She's fantastic. Patience Collier, who is in like Fiddler on the Roof. Um, You know, there's a a lot of really great people in here. Um, Carol Reese, the director of this film was talking and saying, you know, even uh, the basically Charles and Ernestina's uh, servants, Sam and Mary, those two younger act, the actor and actress Hilton McRae and Emily Morgan, they're both really great too. He was like, you know, they took these roles that really didn't have anything there and like elevated them, which I agree with. I thought they were both great too. They were great. Yeah, and so, I loved. Um, I can't. Uh, who played? Who played the woman she goes to work for? She was fantastically evil. Yeah, that that's Patience Collier. 
Oh, got it. Um, unless I've got that wrong, but I think that's right. No, I think you're right. And she, um, she's another one. So the, again, I keep talking about her. I hope I don't sound like I'm disparaging poor Lindsay Baxter who plays Ernestina. Her voice is she's, I, I honestly thought, okay, she, she plays like one of the stepsisters in the animated version of Cinderella or something. She just has that voice of like yeah. very old fashioned. And, and so does Patience Collier again, like kind of a very uh, stylized performance. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think I, I think I love Lindsay Baxter's performance too because it creates such a contrast to the Sarah Woodruff character. Exactly. Like a picture of Victorian heirs. Exactly. And, and that's Jeremy, what he thinks he wants. Right. And Jeremy Irons said that actually was really helpful to him. Um, he said, you know, having these two remarkably different you know, takes on these performances made like his choices make a little bit more sense to him. Like he could see why he was gravitating towards this very mysterious woman because like he kind of saw what was in front of him and it was like, you know, the perfect contrast to that. So um, anyway. I, I would love to see a remake of this movie. Really? Yes, I would. Only because I think there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of nuance in there that's not quite in the film. I mean, I think there, I, I wouldn't be opposed to a remake of it. Who would you see? Do you, anybody jump to mind? No, not off the top of my head. And I think, I, I think I would just like to see it done with a, with, with um, a, a, a modern eye. With our with our new because we are we're we're now using a lens that's just so different in terms of gender roles and what it actually means for a woman to have her reputation ruined in that period has a very different it has it has a very different meaning for us now than it did even in the eighties. Like we're so far removed from that. I just think it'd be a very a very interesting revisit. Um, I think explore I think some of that more. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it. I'll tell you who I could see. Who? Saoirse Ronan. Oh, she'd be so good. Oh, so Ronan Actually, them. I mean, I hate to, like, go with the flow on this one, but Timothy Chalamet would actually be pretty good. I actually was going to say that, too. I, I, you know, the whole Saoirse Ronan, Timothy Chalamet, Greta Gerwig thing, like, could work here. I don't think we need to, like, necessarily keep going to that same well over and over and over and over and over again. But, you know, if they did it sporadically and, and really, like, were good about choosing their moments, this could be one. I could also see, you know, father, son. I could see Max Irons doing it. Interesting. That would be interesting. That would be good. That'd yeah. be very good. Do you have any uh, favorite scenes in this movie? I'm trying to think. My, my, my favorite scene in, in the whole movie is the scene between Meryl Streep and Penelope Walton on the porch about the garden, uh, which doesn't include Jeremy Irons. And then I, um, I really like, I like all the scenes between Anna and Mike. I particularly like the one where they're rehearsing her getting her skirt caught on the bramble. Yeah. How about you? I think I have to go with that monologue. It's maybe not the most. Which one? Well, the really long, like seven, eight minute monologue in the she forest. Explained what happened to her? Yeah. 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 She's talking about basically her former partner, the reason that she's called the French lieutenant's woman. Um, 
that whole story. It just, I'm shocked in some ways whenever there's like a seven minute monologue in a movie, it just seems like, oh, we still do this every once in a while. Wow. Um, so I, for that, I think she's, that's another one where they were talking about, they did a lot of, you know, different takes, a lot of different interpretations and they really struggled with, is this one more valid than this one? You know, like in terms of choices, which is kind of as an actor, that place you always want to be, you know, you always want to spend that time thinking about choices and which is the best choice. So I don't know. I like that scene. I think she's very good. I think she's really good in the whole movie though. She really is. And I love, um, you know what I love about that monologue is that um, because, because I came into it sort of with fresh eyes, I didn't remember the plot. I didn't remember that she was essentially lying at the right. end of that story. So you watch it and I, you can see it happen, but you don't know why, right? Like you can tell that something all of a sudden gets off about her performance and your spidey sense kind of goes up, but you don't identify it as a lie because she's such a great actor. You're just right. like, what's one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> and then you find out it's a lie and you call, you, you sort of call yourself back to that moment and you're like, of course, she was lying. <laughs> yeah, so good. Um, I'm going to read uh, the only, there's only one, one star review on IMDb. Okay. This is the segment that we started doing. This is not particularly funny, uh, it's, but it's short anyway. It's called What an Awful Film by P. Weber underscore A. I'm going to read this one slowly. There's some grammatical things. I'm not reading it slowly to make fun of the grammatical things. I just want to read it accurately. And it's, it's one of those things where I would correct it without even trying, I think. Okay. okay, so it says, this is one of the worst film I have ever seen. I heard once that it was a good film, but I became terrified how this film is bad. Two hours that does not pass. This film doesn't not have not even a good part to worthwhile. That's the end of it. Okay. No comment. I, you know, maybe it was somebody who's... A fast type. Yeah, a fast type, somebody who English is not their first language. I get it. You know, like, it, it is what it is. I'm not interested in tearing somebody down. I just, it, it is a different interpretation, different strokes for different people. But um, I could see how this film is maybe not for everybody. But, yeah, like, I, I think the other things about this film are... Like the score is really beautiful for this movie, I think too. Beautiful music, beautiful visuals. Yeah. So cinematography is good. This is another movie that was made six years before Ironweed and yet seems uh, like the quality of it in terms of cinematography. It's like 10 years later instead of six years earlier. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. totally. That's crazy to think about timeline wise. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, I would definitely watch it again. I highly recommend it to people. I have no idea where I'm going to rank it. I need a, I, I need a little bit of time on that. Okay. I've got my... How about you, though? Do you know where you're going to rank it? I, pre, I preset them, because, yes, I was thinking about that very thing. So I have it in my... It's currently on the number 10 spot in the performances. Uh, so Cry in the Dark is number 9. Now this is number 10. And it's bumped Kramer versus Kramer for me out of the top 10 into 11. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Uh, for my ranking of her films, I have it just a little bit lower at the number uh, 13 spot. Again, right after Cry in the Dark and just above the laundromat. Gotcha. So I have yeah. it 
you know, near, well, it's in the top 10 in performances and near the top 10 in, um, in overall, in overall movies, which I think is, uh, uh, it seems about right for it to be in the top third for me. Yeah, that makes sense. I gotta think about it. I'm just not sure. I think I need to watch it again. I think you should. Yes, I think you should too. It's on Prime, everybody, so you can watch it for free if you have a Prime membership. Yeah, it's it's fun. Um, all right, shall we move on to our other segments? Yeah, let's do it. Let's get it out of the way, folks. Sorry, we have completely forgotten who our <laughs> sixth degrees person is. We forgot if we even said anybody last time. Even so. though you have just listened to it, we right. have forgotten. Yeah. We have let a little time lapse in between this because of that, mostly because of that interview that we did actually with yeah. that kind of threw our schedule off a little bit, which was worth it, but it just kind of sure. happened. And uh, so anyway, do you want to tell them, because I've already forgotten who, who we're going to do for next time? Oh, sort of going off of uh, Enola Holmes, we're going to do Millie Bobby Brown. That's right. Uh, so yes, That's we're going to try to... Yeah, I have one that I can kind of, I, I'm pretty sure I can connect her, but it'll take a, it'll take a thought. Um, what about movies we wish Meryl was in? Uh, uh, you know what? I just, I got very excited. This is a little bit of a tangent, but everybody stick with me. I got very excited because I thought they were going to do a Father of the Bride 3. And then it turned out to be just like an internet thing for charity and and they got together but it would have been i love diane keaton and father of the bride so again i will i will caveat this by saying i do not want to replace diane keaton and father of the bride but it would be very fun to see meryl streep in the father of the bride movies yeah i could see that yeah that that would be right in her wheelhouse nancy myers yeah that's all